The Iraq War just turned 20 this year, and while it can't necessarily drink, I for one can do so on its behalf. It says here that I have one article remaining. Join our newsletter for free access to our reporting. So I'm on The Intercept's website right now for this week's article. And as much as I don't necessarily support unnecessary paywalls, though advocate for supporting journalism, whether that be through monetary or um, any kind of social sharing, it doesn't necessarily... <laughs> it doesn't necessarily bring this in a positive light if, uh, in order to get the information from the computer screen to my noggin, I have to give up my personal email. Join our newsletter for free access to our reporting. Quote, this is not a paywall and joining is free. Interested in your privacy options? Learn about different ways to access this site by visiting our email privacy page. Now, while not sponsored, I can safely say that Brave has definitely been great at doing this for me. So I'll pass. Okay. Well, I thought that that was just going to completely boot me out, but I think we're fine. Today on the chopping block, we have John Swarz's The Architects of the Iraq War. Where are they now? Again, this is from The Intercept. And in case you were wondering, they're doing great. Thanks for asking. Here we have a photo of U.S. Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. President George W. Bush and Vice President Dick Cheney at the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia on December 15, 2006. The U.S. and its, ally in, and its allies invaded Iraq 20 years ago in Operation Iraqi Freedom. President George W. Bush's press secretary, Ari Flesher, twice accidentally referred to it as Operation Iraqi Liberation, which was definitely not its official name and would have generated an unfortunate acronym. <laughs> right away, I can tell this is going to be a good article. So, I, I'm, I'm sort of inundated with just articles of standalone news where it's like, hey, it, it comes across as very, this is very much what you should be caring about, and containing no semblance of humor, no semblance of sardonicism or wit. John's got it in the bag, okay? <laughs> He's already coming out the gate with a pun here. And whether or not this is going to comment on sort of the fiscal impact, I'm, I'm sure it will, as well as just the overall militancy of it all, and just regarding whether or not, oh, whether or not it should have happened in the first place or whether it should have, it should have gone on long enough. I am not an expert on any of this by any stretch of the imagination. This is simply me reacting to an article. However, I can comment uh, through the eyes of, I guess, what seven and a half weeks of basic military training can pose on an individual. So I'll be approaching it from the perspective of that. Um, am I a hawk by any means, any stretch of the imagination? I can safely understand that I do understand the positive effects of what it means to be at war and how that stimulates the economy positively, as we've seen in history in decades prior. However, I don't think quite so much that uh, public opinion uh, shares the same sentiment 
as what we've been involved in since 2003. The men and women who launched this catastrophic criminal war have paid no price over the past two decades. On the contrary, they've been showered with promotions and cash. There are two ways to look at this. One is that their job was to make the right decisions for America, politicians, in parentheses, and to tell the truth, journalists. This would mean that since then, the system has malfunctioned over and over again, accidentally promoting people who are blatantly incompetent failures. Another way to look at this is that their job was to start a war that would extend the U.S. empire and be extremely profitable for the U.S. defense establishment and oil industry. Well, I thought we weren't calling it by that acronym, but all right. With no regard for what's best for America or telling the truth. This would mean that they were extremely competent, and the system has not been making hundreds of terrible mistakes, but rather has done exactly the right thing by promoting them. You could read this and then decide for yourself which perspective makes the most sense. The following list doesn't include anything about the Iraqis who've died since 2003. Partly, this is because it's traditional for the U.S. media to pay no attention to the lives of foreigners. Of course, war looks bad on TV, uh, especially when there are ample amounts of international casualties at play. Of course, we're not the problem, but uh, yeah, of course not. Uh, partly, this is because we have no idea how many Iraqis' deaths there have been. Various estimates range from 151,000 to over a million. While the U.S. ultimately spent at least $3 trillion on the war, Jesus. And it's funny, too, because at least $3 trillion, which is taken directly from the article, that, that exact uh, line of text, it's a hyperlink, meaning you can click on it. And if you do click on it, it links you to another article entitled The True Cost of the Iraq War, $3 trillion and Beyond, uh, by Harvard Kennedy School. Linda Bilms? Bilms? I'm definitely <laughs> butchering that. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Senior Lecturer in Public Policy. And I'll just read this abstract here, as I believe it'll give some good background onto what we are currently reading. Not to entirely tangent, but... Writing in these pages in early 2008, we put the total cost of the United States to the United States of the Iraq War at $3 trillion. The price tag dwarfed previous estimates, including the Bush administration's 2003 projections of a $50 billion to $60 billion war. But today, as the United States ends combat in Iraq, it appears that our, tr that our $3 trillion estimate, which accounted for both government expenses and the war's broader impact on the U.S. economy, was, if anything, too low. For example, the cost of diagnosing, treating, and compensating disabled veterans has proved higher than we expected. Now going back, while the U.S. ultimately spent at least $3 trillion on the war, and the CIA put down $1 billion just to figure out that Iraq had no weapons of mass destruction, took 20 years to figure that out. We've allocated exactly zero dollars to learn how many Iraqis have died thanks to us. Come on, we're not made of money, says, uh, says Schwartz. <laughs> we're not made of money. We can, of course, print more. We can, of course, 
give to international affairs in 2023, and whether or not we're going to be going into a discussion about that, I don't have the time nor patience to do so. But I'm sure we have our opinions here. Starting off with George W. Bush. Former President Bush and Russian President Vladimir Putin are the 21st century's premier war criminals. In a better world, they'd be sharing a cell at the hog, playing lots of pinolchi, and getting up to various mass murderer hijinks. (laughs) Oh man, this this feels like it could be a Scooby-Doo episode. (laughs) hijinks people hijinks but here in this universe bush is gobbling down huge quantities of money on the speaking circuit where he charges at least a hundred thousand dollars for an hour of the pensees he recently condemned quote the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of iraq then he said quote i mean of ukraine and he and his audience all chortled because you have to admit that it's pretty funny His time is also devoted to painting and being buddies with the Clintons and the Obamas. In particular... (laughs) Am I reading this right? Did I just slip into a coma? In particular, he likes to sneak candy to Michelle Obama at solemn events. I have to click this hyperlink, ladies and gentlemen. Sneak candy. Michelle Obama reveals what really happened during her sweet exchange with George W. Bush. There's nothing like a piece of candy between two bipartisan buds. Perhaps the sweetest subtle moment at John McCain's funeral in September came when former President George W. Bush slipped former First Lady Michelle Obama an Altoid. Ashley Hoffman of Time, are you okay? Did this warrant an article (laughs) that needed to be put on Time's newsfeed. I can understand the whole conversation that we need to have about bipartisanship. Perhaps nonpartisanship. Perhaps politics should be the last thing that we should be focused on in regards to something like basic human decency and rights. But in Altoid, we had... Someone gave an inch. George Georgie gave an inch... And the media just took a mile with this. Cameras captured the moment during the funeral service as Senator Joe Laborman was delivering his eulogy for McCain, who died after a battle with brain cancer at Washington National Cathedral. She mouthed the words, thank you, with the flash of a smile. Suffice it to say, the mint was enough to refresh the internet. People flipped for the, quote, Michelle Obama George Bush candy moment. Now, if you don't ship that, I guess you're a bigoted, racist, unintelligent, knuckle dragger um because of of course that's what the internet should be talking about but what do i know so at an appearance on nbc's today show on thursday morning obama explained the gesture and her relationship with her republican friend hmm. i didn't realize at the time that anybody noticed what we were doing president bush and i we are forever seatmates because of protocol. That's how we sit at all the official functions. So he is my partner in crime at every major thing where all the formers gather. So we're together all the time, and I love him to death. He's a wonderful man. He's a funny man. I vividly remember uh, your husband, Michelle, distinctively trying to undo his administration to some stretch of the imagination. And... 
while you kind of do expect a sort of cordialness in politics, because I do believe that bipartisanship should very well be utilized. I mean, I, I can understand a nation divided is just a nation that doesn't get anything done by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, lo and behold, right? But, and maybe it's just a matter of because the term is over, there's no hard feelings. Is that what this is? There is one key detail people missed. The Altuds were apparently from a place they both called home, the White House. I will add they were old cough drops. That's the funny thing, because they were in the little White House box, and I was like, how long have you had these? And he said, a long time. We got a lot of these. She went on to discuss why the bipartisan gesture resonated. That's what people are hungry for. Party doesn't separate us. Color, gender, those kinds of things don't separate us. It's the message that we send, Obama said. If we're the adults in the room and we're not showing that level of decency, we can't expect our children to do the same. Hmm. Well, in, in, in attempting not to veer too far off the off the rails here, because every single hyperlink, I'm just tempted to click it. I mean, that one was just, I guess, a little insightful quip as to how we can be better, but in 2023, we don't see that. Uh, <laughs> I can't think of the last time I actually saw a bipartisan piece that, you know, warmed my heart to any stretch of the imagination. Dick Cheney, moving on. Vice President Cheney told one of the most blatant lies about Iraq during the build-up to the war. In an August 2002 speech, he claimed that when Saddam Hussein's son-in-law, Hussein Kamel, defected in 1995, he revealed that Iraq was trying to make nuclear weapons again. In reality, Kamel had insisted that Iraq had no unconventional weapons of any kind. This was not a big secret. Kamel said it on CNN in an interview that was available to anyone with an internet connection. Again, hyperlink, have to click it. Oh, this is just the interview transcript, which, if you'd like to read, I'll go ahead and link it in the, uh, in the episode description. America's crack press corps ripped the lid off Cheney's obvious deceit by completely missing it. And since leaving office, Cheney has spent his time fishing. Boomer! alert, endorsing Donald Trump for president in 2016 and not being prosecuted for torture. <laughs> also, for a period of time, he had a kind of external mechanical heart that pushed blood through his veins continuously, meaning that he had no heartbeat yet was still alive. And this, of course, leads to an article blocked by a paywall, might I add, but from what I can read, it says here, um, again, from what I can read, Cheney helped for many months by mechanical and terrific, feeling terrific after transplant. It's enough for the Washington Post to rear its ugly head when it does, but when the Washington Post has a paywall that encompasses one quarter of the screen off to the left that completely blocks off the title. And it's probably even... It's probably wrong in what I'm saying here because I can only read so much of it. I guess I could read the URL. Here we go. Cheney helped for many months by a mechanical heart is... a terrific transplant. 
Okay, well, while I sifted through the HTML, I guess that's what it says. But try one month for $1. You know what, Washington Post? You kind of just threw me a curveball with not even allowing me to access the news, which I thought that was the whole point of the news was to make it accessible and for people to draw their own conclusions. Uh, how wrong was I? I'm, of course, just exaggerating. <laughs> uh, yet he was still alive. Donald Rumsfeld. On the afternoon of 9-11, as the Pentagon was still on fire, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld was eagerly asking whether the U.S. could now attack Iraq. Rumsfeld died in 2021, but before then he got in some quality time at his antebellum vacation home on the Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. The nickname of Rumsfeld Estate was Mount Misery, and as the New York Times reported, it had once been owned by a man named Edward Covey, who was, quote, notorious for breaking unruly slaves for other farmers. Oh boy. One subjected to this treatment was a 16-year-old Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass. Oh, small world. Who later wrote it made him, quote, wrecked, changed, and bewildered, goaded almost to madness. You have to admit, there's a nice historical symmetry here. Given Rumsfeld's own role in tormenting other humans, you can imagine Covey's ghost visiting Rumsfeld in the darkest night and telling him, Hey, great job. We'll be moving on to Colin Powell here. Actually, we're, we're going down the whole laundry list of uh, individuals who... I guess we're involved in some capacity and um, whether or not the author has a particular bone to pick or is just humorously regaling the tale of a 20-year-old absolute money pit, if you want to look at it financially, um, I can at least appreciate the wit. He's, he's doing better than I am, and it's only episode two. Colin Powell. One neat thing about Secretary of State Powell's 2003 presentation at the United Nations was that Powell absolutely knew he was lying. In the hyperlinked article titled, Lie After Lie, What Colin Powell Knew About Iraq 15 Years Ago and What He Told the UN. Famed Washington Post columnist Mary McGrory responded to Powell's deluge of deception by proclaiming, quote, he persuaded me, and I was as tough as France to convince. The cumulative effect was stunning. McGrory apparently did not know the most basic fact about Powell, which was that he was an extremely proficient liar who'd risen to the top by lying about the My Lai massacre in Vietnam and then lying about the Iran-Contra scandal. Powell also died in 2021, but before that, he spent his post-political life being rich. I mean, isn't that what every pension seeker seeks for? Being rich? No, we're, we're just trying to make it day by day. <laughs> every now and then, people would ask him about his UN appearance, and he would tell them he had been horribly misled by individuals he never identified. Next up, we have John Bolton. Under Secretary of State, Bolton played a central role in the Bush administration's WMD lies by pushing out Jose Bustani, the head of the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, or OPCW. Bustani had committed a supreme crime, 
planning to conduct inspections to determine if Iraq had chemical weapons, and Bolton's concern was that the OPCW would discover that, surprise, surprise, Iraq did not. In a particularly nice touch, Bolton threatened Bustani's children. Bolton was rewarded for this by being named National Security Advisor by Trump. Oh, man. God, this is just taking, you know, going on LinkedIn and lying on your job application uh, to a whole new degree of just what in God's name, you know? Like, what, what the hell? What levels can you stoop to at this point? He did experience some distress, however. Trump wasn't completely sure who he was and sometimes would refer to him as Mike Bolton. Condoleezza Rice. National Security Advisor Rice explained in January 2003 why the, the U.S. had to invade Iraq if there was any uncertainty. Quote, we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. The prestigious Hoover Institution at Stanford University considered her career and decided this was exactly who they wanted as their director. Why? Because of her commitment to the institution's core mission of safeguarding peace, prosperity, and freedom. Hundreds of thousands of dead Iraqis were not available for comment on this commitment. It's days like these where I read specific articles and... All in all, it obviously, yes, it helps to not judge a book by its cover. In the same vein, it helps to not look at an article title, immediately gravitate towards who published it, and performed a snap judgment opinion on to whether or not you're going to assert your biases as you read it. For me, however, and fortunately... Uh, there is no bias associated with any of the articles that I read in this show because I am going into these articles blind and reacting based off of the prior intuition, or even lack thereof, of anecdotal experiences or past conversations. But it really makes me wonder if sardonic journalism, satirical journalism, I'm not sure really what the key flavor of the month name it is if more of this and, and i could just be completely generalizing myself and my my lack of knowledge on this subject um just sounding completely yellow but it makes me wonder why this sort of humorous approach in political journalism isn't more prevalent i'm not saying that Journalism doesn't need to take itself seriously. I do believe that there is a time and place, but Schwartz is making me laugh ad nauseum with these with these one-liners, man. It's oh, it's brutal. It is absolutely brutal, and I love it. Hundreds of thousands of dead Iraqis were not available to comment on for comment on this commitment. It makes me feel like I should have. I should have broken into a new discipline or, or a different discipline when I was in when I was an undergrad. But um, you know, stick a microphone in my face. I guess this is where this is where it led me. David Frome. From Frome, however you want to pronounce his name, was a speechwriter in the Bush White House. He famously coined the phrase "axis of evil," consisting of Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. 
For Bush's 2002 State of the Union address, Iraq and Iran were a peculiar axis, given that they were mortal enemies, but Froome was not hobbled by such concepts as, quote, making sense. After leaving the White House, Froome co-wrote a book called An End to Evil, How to Win the War on Terror. Sadly, we did not follow his advice, and evil still besets us. In An End to Evil, Froome reported that, quote, there is overwhelming evidence that Saddam had extensive chemical and biological weapons programs. You may not be surprised to learn that this was absolutely false. Froome was rewarded for this performance by The Atlantic with a job there as a staff writer. This week, Frome wrote a 20th anniversary piece for the magazine, which, you know I gotta click on the link and see this. The Iraq War Reconsidered. The U.S.-led invasion was a grave and costly error, but 20 years on, another assessment is possible. Of course, I'm not going to go into this because, lo and behold, never miss a story, start your free trial. Uncompromising quality. Yeah, I would say so. I'd say that a paywall is definitely uncompromising. And, uh, quality? I would comment on that, except for the fact that I'm only seeing one eighteenth of the overall article. Enduring impact? You mean the impact fiscally that you're you're suggesting that I get my wallet out? Your support ensures a bright f- future for independent journalism. Anecdotally speaking, I don't know one journalist personally that writes for a name as big as the Atlantic, okay? So I'm questioning the tenacity of what you constitute as independent. Um, and of course, I'm not that ignorant to only just attest independent journalism to some podunk newspaper in the middle of, say, Santa Clarita. But <laughs> I, I'm going to have to pass, Atlantic. I'm going to have to pass. I hope you got all of that. I hope you got the gist of it from that title alone, because that's essentially all I'm allowed to read. This week, Frum wrote a 20th anniversary piece for the magazine, which led off with the revelation that Iraq possessed, quote, an arsenal of chemical warfare, sh- warfare shells and warheads. You might wonder, given that Bush and Cheney were totally vindicated by the, this arsenal, why they never mentioned it. Are they just super modest? This is exactly the kind of question asking that will destroy your career in the prestige media. Next up, we have David Brooks. Journalist Brooks contributed an article to the Weekly Standard just after the start of the war called The Collapse of Dream Palaces. You absolutely must read it. It's one of the most bonkers things to ever appear in the English language. Well, you got my attention. You know what I'm going to do. David Brooks, The Collapse of the Dream Palaces. Um, relatively long, but I will go ahead and read the first the first paragraph, just to sort of get some background here. George Orwell was a genuinely modest man, but he knew he had a talent for facing unpleasant facts. That doesn't seem at first glance like much of a gift, but when one looks around the world, one quickly sees how rare it is. Most people nurture the facts that confirm their worldview and ignore or marginalize the ones that don't, unable to achieve enough emotional detachment from their own political passions to see the world as it really is. Now that the war in Iraq is over, we'll find out how many more people around the world are capable of facing unpleasant facts. Oh boy, do we ever know that, considering what's going on since 2020, but that's only going back three years. 
for the events of recent months confirm that millions of human beings are living in dream palaces, to use Fawad Ajami's phrase. They are living with versions of reality that simply do not comport with the way things are. They circulate and recirculate conspiracy theories, myths, and allegations with little regard for whether or not these fantasies are true, and the events of the past month have exposed them as the falsehoods they are. But but conspiracy theories are are, are fun to read by the Yahoo by, by the Yahoos who submit in their local OAN tabloids. I mean, come on. If you want to look at if you want to have a veritable bell chart of IQ. You can go ahead and plot that for yourself, you know. Um, but yeah, no, I, I often think to myself that, you know, conspiracy theories, while not rooted necessarily in any particular sentiment other than just... I used to think conspiracy theorists were just sort of wackos on the internet, and while many have sort of come to fruition of... Uh, this is actually true, and maybe it wasn't. It just wasn't proved earlier. Or hey, with the advent of the internet, or maybe someone slipping up on air, uh, this is now the case. So, while I think just the overall terminology of conspiracy theory—I mean, conspiracy theorist all, already carries a negative connotation. I think if there was another term to just utilize that would be a non-biased hey here's what i found label i mean then again i'm probably just asking too much of people to just be like hey look new information oh no that's wrong conspiracy theory you know um i guess i'm just asking for people to be less reactionary but <laughs> oh that's uh, it'll be a cold day in hell it'll be a cold day in hell its core argument is that opponents of the Iraq War had been, quote, unable to achieve enough emotional detachment from their own political passions to see the world as it really is, and their fantasy world was just was about to meet cold, hard reality. North Korean propagandists would have rejected it as too embarrassing. The New York Times saw the quality of this work and soon afterward hired Brooks as a regular columnist. Now we have... Three more individuals. Uh, first and foremost, we have Jeffrey Goldberg. Goldberg, then a staff writer at The New Yorker, is one of the most influential proponents of the evasion of Iraq outside of the government. His work was entered into the congressional record, if you can believe that, during the debate on the authorization to use military force in fall 2002. In The New Yorker, Goldberg wrote that, quote, there is no disagreement that Iraq, if unchecked, will have nuclear weapons soon. And of course, everyone knew it already, had stocks, had quote, stocks of biological and chemical weapons. In October of 2002, Goldberg argued, quote, the administration is planning today to launch what many people would undoubtedly call a short-sighted and inexcusable act of aggression. In five years, however, I believe that the coming invasion of Iraq will be remembered as an act of profound morality. You may recall that in 2007, October, came and went without a lot of celebration of this profound morality. Jeffrey Goldberg is now the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. Man, I never thought that this would just 
it reminds me of those 90s movies where, you know, they like they, they won the football game, right? And then it pans to like a black and white still image where it's like <laughs> such and such did this in the movie and then oh, Jeffrey Goldberg went on to be the editor in chief of the Atlantic. He is currently serving his position favorably <laughs> to some and then it just says off to the bottom to some. Oh boy, Judith Miller Miller wrote or co-wrote many of the hilariously credulous New York Times articles, warning readers of the terrifying threat of Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. Perhaps the funniest piece of her over was published soon after the invasion, headlined, quote, illicit arms kept till eve of war, an Iraqi scientist is said to assert. It wasn't based on Miller ever talking to the scientist. However, Miller reported, while this reporter could not interview the scientist, she was permitted to see him from a distance. This is always how the best journalism has always been done, watching from a distance. She soon went on TV to declare this was, quote, more than a smoking gun. What they found is a silver bullet. Interestingly, Miller is one of the only people on this list to ever suffer any career damage over Iraq. She resigned slash was fired in 2005, and of course, of course, I'm going to click. New York Times Times reporter agrees to leave the paper. No, I will not access the all-access sale, and yes, while I do support funding independent journalism, I'm not looking at the New York Times as the epicenter of of that categorization. I can, however, see that by Catherine Q. Seal, the New York Times, and Judith Miller, a veteran reporter for the paper, reached an agreement yesterday that ended her 28-year career at the newspaper and capped more than two weeks of negotiations. That's all I can read. Hope you got that. Hope you're not poor. Granted, it is only $1 a week, but uh, uh, given that this is only episode two and the, uh, the, the, sp- the sponsorships haven't necessarily been rolling in, um, we're going to have to just kind of make do with what we have here. So to return, uh, it had more to do with her entanglement in the prosecution of Scooter Liberty than her cataclysmic WMD work. Don't feel bad for her, though, however. She went on to work for Fox and is currently a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. The CFR, you see, is devoted to helping Americans, quote, better understand the world and the foreign policy choices facing the United States. Now, when you say devoted, I it, it, it's funny. It, it really is. Because devoted, another hyperlink, links you to the Council on Foreign Relations about CFR. The Council on Foreign Relations is an independent, nonpartisan membership organization, think tank, and publisher dedicated to being a resource for its members, government officials, business executives, journalists, educators, and students, civic and religious leaders, yada, 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 will go down the jury duty list, and... okay, great. I'm under the impression that this is partisan as all hell, and I'll quit while I'm ahead. And last but not least, everybody, Biden was a Democratic senator from Delaware. Joe Biden, this is the last individual, in the run-up to the war and chair of the Senate's Foreign Relations Committee. He ran hearings, making the case for the invasion, and became one of the most significant Democratic voices supporting it. 
Biden remains prominent in American politics. Oh, man. Oh, God. You hate to see it, or you love to see it, depending on which way you happen to swing and how you'll be voting in 2024. Uh, The article also mentions, plus a cast of thousands. This article has to stop here because otherwise it would become an unbelievably depressing 800-page book. The reality is that most of the D.C. foreign policy blob signed up to push the Iraq war, and for the most part, they're all still there, several big steps up the career ladder just blobbing away. Voltaire said that the humanity in that the Voltaire said that humanity invented hell, there we go, to dissuade people from doing wrong when they noticed there didn't seem to be any consequences for it here on earth. On this bleak anniversary, you can certainly understand where he was coming from. I would stop here. I really would. But the intercept is once again trying to sell me on a dream. <laughs> and I just have to read it. Wait! Before you go, on about your day. I love that. It's like some words were boldened and underlined, so like the... the (laughs) Oh, the composition's just all messed up. So wait, before you go on about your day, ask yourself, how likely is it that the story you just read would have been produced by a different news outlet if The Intercept hadn't done it? Okay. So you're saying that most major news stations, say, favoring the war, um, probably wouldn't have produced something to this effect? Yeah, that's a fair argument. I mean, I can understand anti-war sentiments and the media outlets that voice and echo those opinions would probably pick this up. But, of course, I could be wrong. Consider what the world of media would look like without the intercepts. Here we go. Who would hold party elites accountable to the values they proclaim to have? How many covert wars, miscarriages of justice, and dystopian technologies would remain hidden if our reports weren't on the beat? Holy shit, here we this is like this is like Jim Jones speaking into the microphone. It's either you're my friend or uh bring out the Kool-Aid. <laughs> The intercept will save us, everyone. Okay, They're, we've we've shot the congressman. We're all safe. The, the kind of reporting we do is essential to democracy, but it's not easy, cheap, or profitable. The Intercept is an independent nonprofit news outlet. We don't have ads, so we depend on our members to help us hold the powerful to account. Joining is simple and doesn't need to cost a lot. You can become a sustaining member for as little as three dollars or five dollars a month. That's all it takes to support the journalism you rely on. See, $3 or $5 a month. The lowest rank here is 5 bucks. And while you can safely make the assumption that this is probably something you should undoubtedly spend on as opposed to Starbucks every day, as conservatives would chortle, um, there's not even like a, hey... I have a buck to my name, and I I found this story very engaging, so this is why I want to support. I mean, one time? No, one time. Your choices are $15, $25, $50, or $100. 5, 8, 10, and 15 if you go the monthly route. And as of now, here I am. Just, I mean, I'd I'd be a piece of garbage if I didn't donate, right? Well thing is, I may be a piece of garbage. 
but if I'm not on this list, I guess you could say that I did alright.